Well, hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be with you this morning. I'm pleased to be able to share worship with you today as we close out 2019. This has been an incredible year for our church. We have a lot to praise God for and a lot to celebrate this year. We've also had to face some tremendous difficulties and challenges. Some of you as individuals, some of us as families, as friends, and including our church body. So when Pastor Chris asked me to preach today, it took me a while to prayerfully consider just what it was that the Holy Spirit wanted me to share with you here today. And, and I thought about doing like a, a review and synthesis of what we've been studying in Romans, but I just didn't have peace about that. So I thought about doing a New Year's sermon, about talking about some of the things that we should be looking forward to with hope in the coming year. I mean, 2020 vision, that's a pretty catchy sermon title, right? Kind of writes itself from there. But I just couldn't get peace about that either. And so uh, later, Chris and I were talking about some of the challenges that, that we have faced as a church this year. Some of the things that people in our church have had to fight through this year. And th those things have been incredibly overwhelming. Some of the things that we've had to fight through as a staff this year have been a burden. Now we've come through these things with the power of the Holy Spirit. We've come through them well, I think. But they've been, they've been troubling. They've been a struggle. And as we talked, it became clear to us both that what we've been experiencing is without a doubt a well-coordinated attack by our adversary. This is spiritual warfare, folks. We would be deceiving ourselves if we didn't acknowledge it. We have taken a stand here in this church. We've made a commitment to the word of God and to the truth of the gospel that is uncompromising. And let me tell you something, that makes us a threat. If we weren't a threat, we wouldn't be attacked the way we have been. So I began to pray about whether God wanted me to share from his word some truths about spiritual warfare. And I began studying it. And as I studied it, I started experiencing some spiritual warfare myself. Which kind of let me know I was on the right track. <laughs> and so I wrote this sermon about spiritual warfare. Then I read through it and realized it was two hours long. So I didn't want to do that to you folks. So I narrowed it down. I narrowed it down to a topic that I think is one key area that I think is at the heart and center of a lot of the attacks that we've had to face this year. So many of the issues we have faced this year have come about as a result of the breakdown of communication. Communication breakdowns are something that I know a little bit about, okay? As a marriage counselor, one of the things that I do is I attempt to enhance and teach good communication tools to couples so that they can solve their own problems. One of the things that I say a lot is, you're the experts on your marriage, not me. So I'm just going to teach you how to communicate well, effectively, and fair so that you can resolve these issues on your own. 
It works. It's a good method. It's biblical. As a pastoral counselor, one of the most powerful things that I can do, the most effective things that I can do to help someone is to help them enhance their communication with God through the reading of his word and through powerful and effective prayer. So communication is critical. But when I was in the military, I also had to be an expert on communication breakdowns. But in a different way. You see, my first job in the Army was to cause them. My, my first MOS in the Army was as a 98 Golf. Now, the job description of a 98 Golf is signals intelligence, electronic warfare, and cryptography. Sounds fancy, huh? Signals intelligence is pretty straightforward. It's listening to the enemy's radio communications and gleaning what information you can get from them. And with the right technology, you can do direction finding. You can find out where their radio transmitters are and make some deductions about where the troop movements are. You can even locate people based on their radio communications. And cryptography is also pretty straightforward. Often, we uh, encrypt our communications. The enemy encrypts their communications. And so cryptography is the science of decoding those communications. You probably heard about in World War II the Enigma machine that the Nazis used and the Allies' efforts to capture an Enigma machine secretly so that they could decrypt Nazi communications without the enemy knowing and that they would have a, a leg up on the enemy. We, we did it ourselves. We used Navajo wind talkers to be able to communicate in a, in a code that, that the enemy could not break. So cryptography is also pretty straightforward, encoding and decoding communications. But electronic warfare is different. When you engage in electronic warfare, you use different techniques that actually use the enemy's own communication against them. The most common form of this is jamming. You've probably heard in movies and things, Arr, we've been jammed. Jamming is when you overpower the enemy's signal with a stronger signal and you deprive them of their ability to communicate with one another. That could be really critical in the heat of combat when they can't communicate. We got another technique called meekening. Meekening with an M. Meekening is when you take over the enemy's global positioning systems and you send them a false signal about where they're located. That can be really critical, especially when you're talking about aircraft that in, at night and in bad weather, inclement weather, often re rely on an external source to tell them where they are, how high they are above the ground, where they are, and where the things around them are. You can really mess somebody up by lying to them. You know where else it comes in play? Is with artillery units and armor units that engage in something called indirect fire. Indirect fire is when you're shooting at targets that you can't see. So you got to know where you are. And you got to know wh where what you're shooting at is. And if you combine these techniques, you can actually confuse your enemy so much that your enemy will destroy each other without you ever even having to fire a shot. With the right equipment, it's not even that hard to do. 
Electronic warfare takes the enemy's communications and it weaponizes it and turns it against them. Now, if you think that our adversary is not at least that sophisticated in his ability to weaponize our communications, then you are deceived by the great deceiver. This is one of the primary ways that Satan has of attacking the people of God. Because if he can get us to fight each other, then we do his work for him. If he can undermine our ability to communicate, then he breaks down our fellowship and we stop functioning as the body of Christ. If he can use our own words against us out of context or in context and use them to cause us to fight with one another, we stop being a church. Now, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that speak to this issue. They warn of the power and danger of the tongue. They tell us to be cautious in preserving our communications. The book of James talks about how the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It's this little tiny piece of wood, but it moves the whole ship around. Over and over again in Scripture, we are cautioned about the the power and the danger of our words, of the things we say. And in our passage today in Matthew 18, we got a lot of insight into communication breakdowns. And most importantly, we get a step-by-step guide on how to resolve them. So when I say Matthew 18, a lot of people's minds instantly go to verses 15 through 20, the verses that Brother John read for us today. Dealing with what to do when, if your brother sins against you. And and, and this is going to be our focus today. But I would be remiss if if I did not lead you to study this passage in context, especially since the entirety of the chapter has application to our topic today of communication breakdowns. At the beginning of chapter 18, we've got a familiar scene. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and they have a question. Which one of us will be the greatest when you come into your kingdom? This is really what is at the heart of the problem. This is the cause of the breakdown. This is where we fail. We have a desire to be the greatest. This is it, the quest for greatness. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what happens. Our selfish ambitions, our conceit, causes us to look at the people around us as less important than ourselves. We stop caring about their interests and the interests of the people around us, and we start focusing on our own. It's insidious. But Jesus teaches his disciples here that greatness was not what they thought it was. He teaches them the quality of greatness. That it's not about the superiority of position. It's not about what you have over the people around you. In verses 2 through 6, Jesus calls a child to him. And he says, this is it. Be like a child. That's the the true quality of greatness 
in the kingdom of God. Humility. Teachability. Vulnerability. These are the things that make you great in God's kingdom. Pastor Chris spoke about this on Christmas Eve. At the heart, at the center of the nativity, of the incarnation of God, is this theme of humility. Jesus born in humble circumstances to humble parents in a humble town, humbling himself from his position in heaven for us. It is an overarching principle of our Christian faith. Humility. And when we get away from that and we seek our own idea of greatness, that's when it goes awry. That's when communication breaks down. Jesus goes on to warn us against taking advantage of humble, teachable, and vulnerable people. The only way that we connect with one another is if our walls are down. And the only way that we can safely keep our walls down is if the people around us respect our vulnerability. And they safeguard it. We have to do that for each other. Jesus says in this passage, it is better for you to die than to take advantage of one another. He makes it real clear. But despite the warnings, despite our cautions, Jesus says that things will go wrong. In verses 7 to 9, he speaks to the certainty of the breakdown. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Necessary that temptations come. Another way to translate that might be mistakes will happen. Another way might be offenses are inevitable. Jesus said that the world we live in is broken and we are broken people. And in our imperfection, we are bound to give people offense. We are bound to do things that will offend people. And in those moments, you have a choice about whether to take offense. It's right there in the term, take offense, right? You choose to pick it up. You choose to take it. We have the choice to be offended. We have a choice to let it go. To sacrifice our pride and just let it go. Jesus tells us that that's actually how it's supposed to work. He tells us how we can avoid that temptation to sin. In verses 8 and 9, he says, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, that's pretty extreme language, right? You know what? It would have been even more extreme to the disciples because there is a strong Jewish taboo against bodily mutilation of any kind. There still is to this day. That's why a lot of Jewish cemeteries won't let you be buried there if you got a tattoo. This was a big deal to Jewish people. Bodily mutilation, huge deal. 
And Jesus said, these are the lengths you go to. He's using strong words here on purpose to let us know how serious this issue is. So let me put it in terms that might be easier for us to accept or, or maybe just easier for us to apply to this particular issue. If your pride offends you, let it go. If your ambitions cause you to sin, give them up. If your dignity comes between you and your brother or sister in Christ, sacrifice it. If preserving your reputation tempts you to take offense, give it up. Cut it out. Let it go. Because it's better for you to be humiliated than it is for you to take offense. How's that sound? To some of you, that probably sounds even more extreme than cutting off your hand or foot, right? Sacrificing your dignity and pride probably seem harder to do than plucking out your eye. But that's precisely what Jesus is calling on us to do. He calls on us to sacrifice rather than to sin. Then he tells a story. A story of a lost sheep and a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep out of his hundred and goes to seek out the one that's been lost and strayed away. And in that story, we come to understand the heart of God for restoration and redemption. When communication breaks down and someone is slipping away, it's up to us to follow the charge of restoration. We need to make restoration our mission when we stray and when we see others stray. When a sheep ran away, the shepherd went to find it because if he didn't, it would die on its own. Sheep without shepherds are dead meat. There are some sheep that if they get flipped over on their back, they can't even get back on their feet again by their own, on, on their own. They will die on their back. Sheep without a shepherd are lost. God's heart is for restoration. And when we allow communication breakdowns to cut us off from other members of the body, when we allow it to compromise our unity, when we stray away or when we cause others to stray away, because we allow the devil to use our communications against us, then we are dead meat. We need to make it our number one priority to seek restoration. And Jesus tells us just how we should do that. He tells us to follow the course of restoration. Now we come to the part of Matthew 18 that we're familiar with. The passage that Brother John read for us this morning. What happens when things go wrong? And in verse 15, we're given the first step. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now that's a simple statement, but it's incredibly profound. It speaks to the heart of restoration. In this step, in step one, Christian love rules. 
You go to that person alone. You don't talk about what happened with anyone else who will listen. You go to them alone so that you can resolve it without anyone else knowing about it. Love demands that you try to preserve that person's reputation and testimony. And Jesus says that is what should define us, the attribute of love. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says that love is one of the primary qualities by which we are known as his disciples. There are four places in Scripture where Jesus uses the word my disciples and then proceeds to tell a a defining characteristic, a defining quality of what a disciple is. And this is one of them here in John 13, 34, and 35. There's one in Luke and three in John. Find them yourself. It's good, good study. He says, my disciples are known by their love. We are to be characterized by remarkable love, love that the world notices. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, the Apostle Paul tells us how to demonstrate the action of love. He tells us that love looks for the best in people, that it believes the best of people, and it gives people the benefit of the doubt. Now that's a remarkable thing. Often our instinct is towards cynicism. We believe the worst about people. When someone comes to us and tells us that someone did or said something, we instantly jump to the worst possible conclusions, the worst case scenarios. We assume the worst. That's even an adage, isn't it? Assume the worst but hope for the best. But that's not the heart of Christian love. That's not believing all things. That's not loving. 1 Corinthians 13 also says, love keeps no record of wrongs. We don't do that very well either. We don't do that very well either. It goes on to say in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all all things. Now that's a tall order. But 1 Corinthians 13, 7 demands that of us. It's what it calls for. So what does that look like? What is bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, and enduring all things mean with regards to how we communicate with one another? In Ephesians 5, 1 through 21, Paul teaches us about the articulation of love. That passage tells us that we shouldn't speak ill of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when it's true. Maybe even especially when it's true. We should seek to restore them. That's why in Matthew 18, 15, it says that you should confront them alone. Don't involve other people. Don't damage other relationships We fail at this so often. And we've got all these sneaky little tricks that the devil has deceived us into using here. Brother and sister so-and-so, I have something I want you to pray about with me. Sister Susie did this. I need some advice, brother, on, on what to do in this case. Let me tell you this vast story about how somebody else messed up.
Let me tell you what the Bible says about that. If any of you lacks wisdom on what to do in a circumstance, let him ask our God who gives generously without reproach. That's James chapter 1, verse 5. That's the verse your kids have been memorizing for the last couple of weeks. Let me tell you something, though. It goes on to say in that same passage, when you do that, rely on the wisdom of God alone. It's not the wisdom of God and the wisdom of someone else. It says if you do that, you're double-minded. You're confused in all your ways. You're tossed about by every wind, every storm that comes your way. You're making it worse. That's why Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If the words that are coming out of your mouth don't serve the purpose of glorifying God or building up the body of Christ, then keep your mouth shut. Everything else is gossip. Let me be clear about this. The biblical definition of gossip is idle talk, saying what should not be said. That's according to 1 Timothy 5.13. Idle talk, anything that does not glorify God or build up the body of Christ. If you're talking to someone about a brother or sister in Christ who is not there with you, and that talk does not glorify God or build up the body of Christ, then it's gossip. It doesn't even matter if it's true. I know sometimes we think that as long as what we're saying is true, that it's not gossip, but guess what? If it's not true, it's slander. If it is true, it's gossip, and the Bible says both are just as evil as murder. It says that in Romans chapter 1. It puts it on a list with open rebellion against God and murder. Gossip is language that is not loving. And let me tell you something, it takes two. Gossip doesn't work if there's nobody to listen. And if you give ear to someone who's sharing gossip you are just as culpable as they are. I am just as culpable as they are. As is so often the case when I write a sermon, it ends up coming back on me a lot. I end up getting convicted while I'm doing it. It's probably a good thing. Hurts, but it's a good thing. In the last few weeks, I've had to go to some people and repent for taking part in gossip. I've had to do that. It wasn't fun. Ephesians 5, 19 to 21 tells us how we should talk to each other. It says we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Can you imagine what our church would look like in 2020 if that kind of communication made up the bulk of how we talk to one another? It'd be much more difficult for demonic influences 
to weaponize our communications if we spoke to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs while making melody to the Lord with our hearts. If the only words we used were those that were good for building up, words that give grace to those who hear, then communication breakdowns would be a lot less frequent. And when they did occur, we would resolve them much more easily if we allowed Christian love to rule our interactions with one another. The words we say matter. But on occasion, step one does not go as we would wish for it to go. And when that happens, we move on to step two, where common law rules. Matthew 18, 16 says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The evidence of witnesses was a part of Jewish common law. And guess what? It's part of our common law too. Confronting someone with evidence of their wrongdoing was a necessary step. It had a purpose, though. The purpose was to inspire repentance and restoration. The hope was that when confronted by the evidence of their failure, that people would repent. The word for witnesses that is used here is the Greek word martus. And it's the same root word that we get the word martyr from. The definition here is someone who attests or can attest from their own knowledge the truth of something. The connotation is someone who is so committed to the truth of something that they are willing to give up everything for that truth. These are witnesses that have personal knowledge of the offense and are committed to the heart of loving restoration. These are not people that you're bringing along for moral support or to witness you confront someone. We make that mistake. That is not what this is saying. That's often how we interpret this. I'm supposed to bring people along to watch me confront this person for accountability. That is not what this is saying. This is saying bringing people along who can attest from their own knowledge the truth of what you're saying so that that person can see that it's not just one person that has seen this in them. And out of love, multiple people are desiring to bring them back into the the body, to restore them. Now, The standard is that if you don't have at least one other witness, one other person who has witnessed that person's sin and you've tried to confront them lovingly alone like it says in verse 15 and and with a heart toward restoration, you've gone to them lovingly and tried to restore them and they have denied or rejected that correction, you know what you do? You let the matter go. You leave it in the hands of God. You leave it in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict. You trust God to handle it. It's better in his hands than it is in ours anyway. And if we continue to try to pursue justice or rightness or fairness, we are demonstrating a fundamental lack of trust in God and his ability to sovereignly convict and restore. 
And you know what, by the way? Side note, you do not want the world to be fair. In a fair world, you go to hell. Life is not fair, and that's a very good thing. Now, if you do have the two witnesses, and they've gone with you, and that person is still denying the matter, refusing to listen to you, then with a heart toward restoration, you move on to step three, where Christian leadership rules. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus says that you turn the matter over to the church, over to the elders of the church for them to resolve. Or if the matter warrants it, for that person to be asked to leave the church. But even that should be done with a mind toward restoration. Historically, some churches have interpreted this passage to mean that you bring the person up in front of the entire church and you publicly confront them. But that kind of public humiliation is not what is called for here. That would make loving restoration so much more challenging. And it doesn't meet the standards that are given to us in Ephesians 5 where it talks about not even speaking what has been done in secret. We should be ashamed of other people's sin. This is a prayerful process that should be filled with grace as well as truth. This is the process by which we restore healthy communication when we have a communication breakdown. But there really is only one end goal here. One final solution. In verses 21 to 35, we see the cure for the breakdown. Regardless of the outcome of following the steps in verses 15 through 20, regardless of whether you are able to achieve repentance, even if you have to let the matter go because you lacked witnesses, the end result is still the same. You can probably see it coming. Peter could see it coming too. As he listens to Jesus talk in verse 21, we see Peter's proposal. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. As many as seven times. Now see, there was a principle in Jewish culture that was taught by the rabbis that if someone sinned against you, that you should forgive them three times. There was an underlying principle that if you forgave him a fourth time, you were actually sinning. So, so Peter probably thinks he's being pretty generous here. He took the Jewish cultural principle and he doubled it and he added one for good measure. That's Peter for you. I'm going to throw down. Peter proposes that there surely has to be some point, some limit past which restoration cannot be achieved. Forgiveness must be finite. But Christ says here there's a deeper principle at work. In verse 22, we see Christ's precept. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven. Little note on, on language here. It was written down in Greek, but most likely Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. In the Aramaic, this term is actually 70 times 77, and it was an idiomatic expression that meant infinity. It meant as many times as are needed. 
You see, he wasn't saying even, even at 70 times 7 or 77 or, or 70 times 77. He wasn't saying you keep a tally sheet and when you hit the magic number, you stop and you don't forgive anymore. He's saying you forgive as many times as it takes. As many times as you have to. Because forgiveness is not about being generous to the person that wronged you. We have a fundamental problem with how we view forgiveness. We, th- we see it as we're being generous to the people that, that we're forgiving. But it's not about generosity to them. It is about eliminating the burden of sin on your own soul. Grudges and resentments eat you away. They keep you from effectively connecting with God. They undermine your walk with Him. They damage the reputation of the gospel in the world. They destroy your soul. Forgiveness is not about the other person. It's about you and your walk with God. Christ expands on that. He shares the parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Here's what it's like. It's like a great king who chooses to settle his accounts, and he calls in a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, to give you some context here, one talent equaled approximately 6,000 denarii. That's about five years' wages. One talent, five years' wages. So I did a quick calculation using the average income in the United States to try and get an idea of what this would be in today's money, and it's roughly equivalent to $2.3 billion. This is an extraordinary debt. This is an incredibly extreme level of debt, but the king is merciful, and he chooses to forgive it all. He forgives the debt, and he lets it go. Then the servant goes out and he finds another servant that owes him a little bit of money, a hundred denarii. I did the math on on that too. It's less than $4,000. And that servant pleads with the forgiven man to, to just give him some time to pay. But the servant has the man arrested and thrown into jail. The king finds out and he calls the servant back and he reinstates the debt And he has the man thrown in prison until he can pay it all back. Which effectively means he's in prison for life. It's really hard to earn enough money in prison to pay back $2.3 billion. Then Christ sums it all up with a statement in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Did you catch that? Jesus says you really need to think about what you have been forgiven by King Jesus. You owed a debt of rebellion and betrayal that could never be repaid. You owed a penalty for your sin that would have cost you your life. And your debt was paid on the cross by Jesus in blood. You were forgiven your unpayable debt by the King. And in light of all you have been forgiven... In light of what Christ did for you, if you can hold on to your grudges, if you can keep holding on to those offenses that someone has put before you, 
then you have to seriously ask yourself if you truly understand the grace afforded by the gospel. Because if you can truly understand the magnitude of what Christ afforded you in salvation, it precludes holding a grudge against someone whose own sin was also paid for on that same cross. The sin that someone committed against you was paid for with the blood of Christ. His payment on the cross satisfied the wrath of God for that sin. Are you really going to tell me that it won't satisfy the grudge that you're holding against them? I'm being serious here. Because if that's the case, you ought to reconsider whether you truly understand the gospel of grace. If you look at your brother and sister in Christ through the eyes of grace afforded by your salvation, it becomes impossible to hold on to your resentment. That's it. That's the end goal here. Forgiveness. Regardless of whether someone apologizes or not, regardless of whether they acknowledge any wrongdoing, even if they continue in their sin, you are still called on to forgive. That's the solution that's the cure for this communication breakdown. Grace. The same grace that was afforded to you, you now have the opportunity to extend that grace to someone else. Forgive and be grateful for the chance to do it. Get to forgiveness as quickly as you can. Jump straight to it. Save yourself the hassle of being offended. Don't allow the enemy to weaponize our communications. If you don't have something to say that glorifies God or builds up the body of Christ, then keep it to yourself and ask God to sanctify those thoughts and help you take them captive so they don't negatively impact your walk with God. When a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and engages in idle talk, things that should not be said, things that don't glorify God or build up the body of Christ, shut them down. Don't be a party to it. Help them to be accountable. That's what we're supposed to do with one another. We are supposed to hold each other accountable. I shared a story in here once about an African village that a missionary came to and shared the gospel and it moved them in a powerful way and they began to study the Bible and they began each of them to go to their own little quiet place in the bush and commune with God and spend time with them. And over time, these pathways that they would take each to their own individual place wore out a path through the, through the brush that was visible for all to see the pathways that these people went to commune and find time with God. And if somebody stopped doing it, weeds would start to grow over the path and it would become evident that that person was drifting away. And out of love, the people of the village would share with them, brother, grass was growing on your path. That's the heart of restoration. That's the heart of love. It's not punitive, it's corrective. It's restoring, it's redemptive. It holds together the unity of the church in love. And if someone does or says something to offend you, 
follow the heart of God for restoration and forgive. Think about your own salvation and thank God for it. Humble yourself and forgive. You might end up being vulnerable. You might end up being exposed to some pain. But the humility and vulnerability, those are exactly the childlike qualities that God said make you great in the kingdom of God. That's the definition of greatness. If you have someone today against whom you are holding a grudge, don't wait to fix that. Don't go into 2020 with a grudge or a resentment in your heart. Don't let another day go by. Don't let another day that grudge to fester in your heart and pollute you. I said earlier that as I prepared this, it probably was more convicting to me than it is to you. I, I had to do this. I called a group of people together and I repented to them my sin, my failing, the way I had dropped the ball with my communications that I had spoken idle talk about other people and I had listened to idle talk from other people. This is a weakness I have. It's a failing I have. I'm standing before you today right now confessing it to you. One of the things it says in Ephesians 5 is that when we shed light on our sin, it loses some of its power. And so that's what I'm doing today. If you've got an unconfessed sin related to the tongue, if you're allowing a communication breakdown to, to pollute your mind, to poison you against someone here in the body of Christ, against a loved one, against a family member, against a friend, against a co-laborer in the kingdom of God, don't let another day go by. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you come to the altar to present your sacrifice and you realize that your brother has ought against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and make it right. Because your worship is tainted by the grudges and resentments that you hold. Don't let another year go by. Don't let the enemy weaponize our communication don't let them use our words against us let us pray